On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, we are going to be talking with Scott Radley, by the way, filling in for Scott Thompson. We're going to be talking about the urban boundary debate. It was a subject of a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy city council meeting this week because so many people are invested in this. Should the city be expanding its boundaries to allow more development or should we be requiring future development to all be grow or most be done in the existing urban area? It's a big topic. We're going to do that with Brad Clark. We're going to talk Olympics with Bubba O'Neill and try and debate the question, who is our greatest ever Olympian? It's an interesting one. You may have some ideas in your head, but we may throw out some other names that deserve to be considered. We're going to be chatting about Afghani translators that helped Canada during the war who have now been left in Afghanistan and are now at the mercy of the Taliban. Veterans groups here in Canada want to bring them over. Why is that not happening? And Rick Zamprin, host of the fifth quarter on 900 CHML, joins us to talk about the resuming of the CFL, Canadian Football League, back this week on Thursday night, opening game after a long time away. All coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on the on the 900 CHML. Yes, on 900 CHML. Off to a fantastic start, aren't we? Yes, it is the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. As we celebrate National Underwear Day. Yes, indeed. You know, somebody sent me something earlier today saying, you know, you should do a call-in segment on the poll that says 20% of people don't change their underwear every day and ask people how often they change their underwear. And I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, it's way easier to do this show if I don't know that kind of stuff about the audience. (laughs) I love you all. I appreciate you all. I'm sure you are all hygienic and clean. But, you know, if a few of you call up and say, I don't change my underwear except once a week, it makes it really hard to carry on. So I'm going to, I'll let you discuss that among yourselves how often you change your underwear. Or the other poll we could have done today is, you know, are you a briefs man? Are you a boxers man? Are you a commando man or woman? You know, we. but again, there's some information about the audience that is probably best just to leave unknown. So celebrate National Underwear Day as you choose. We're going to carry on with some other stuff. Hopefully you're wearing some at the very least. Anyway, first though, today. Uh, Yesterday was a rather epic meeting down at City Hall, or at least on Zoom City Hall. The urban boundary meeting, The this this follows a, a survey that was sent out and discussions about whether Hamilton should... Now, there's always, you know, it's not a hard and fast. It's not no expansion or some, but broadly, should Hamilton be expanding its urban boundary, allowing more land to be used for housing, or should it restrict this and force all future housing probably to be in the urban core or urban areas and be upwards rather than outwards. It is a contentious topic to say the least. Uh, And yesterday, as I say, rather an epic meeting went on and on and on, lots and lots and lots of speakers. The counselor who had requested that this survey be done to find out people's thoughts, because it is a really important issue, is Brad Clark, who joins us now. Brad, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. You, you, you folks on council love those meetings that go on for eight or nine hours, don't you? I live for them. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, I don't know if you know you're on camera. At one point, someone was talking and you were sitting with your head tilted back, looking like you had either passed out or were um, having a moment. But it was, um, I mean, I get it. These I are, was these... deep in thought. I was not sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the, the reason this meeting was so long, and there are other ones that have gone on like this, but a lot of people wanted to have a say in this. It's a, it's a really important issue. And there's there's a good and a bad to that, the, the fact that people want to have their say. Let me start with the, the good on this one. We want people in this city to be engaged. We want people to be involved in the discussion and having an opinion. Way better than apathy, correct? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean... We work hard at civic engagement uh, to have uh, residents um, sharing their thoughts, opinions, suggestions on any number of topics. And on this particular one, which um, will truly impact the rural area, um, I had requested that a mail-in survey be done uh, right across the city. Um, and we expected uh, you know, three, 4,000 responses back. Um, um, staff are advising me that we hit 19,000 between mail and email, which is unprecedented. Right. And, and the number of people yesterday who were wanting to be delegations at council and spoke, there had to be 20, 25, 30 or close to it. I mean, there was a, it, was a, it was a long list of people who wanted to speak to this. Yes, it was a, a long list. Um, and it was... Um, Mixed opinions. Uh, I mean, there is not a consensus across the city, um, but we certainly, I think, because of climate change being front and center in most people's minds and in most surveys, that's what it has indicated. Um, an urban boundary expansion um, seems to be uh, compelling public interest. Uh, that's what people are talking about. So the good, as I say, the good is that we have a lot of people who are engaged and that's a really positive thing because too often we are kind of apathetic about a lot of different things. Just look at voting in municipal elections. We are apathetic a lot of the time. The bad, I think, or at least a concerning or confusing or cautionary thing here is part of the reason that there seem to be so many people is that we have seen over the last number of weeks that there seems to be an awful lot of organization going on one side of this, that there seems to be a concerted organized effort to get ballots in. How do you wade through that, if that's the case, as a councillor and look at, you know, yeah, we may get 19,000 and who knows, maybe 18,000 of those are going to be against, but we know one side was organizing. So do we have to take that into consideration and weigh that against the others? How do you deal with that? You deal with it by recognizing that each response is an individual response. Um, people in Hamilton are not led like sheep. People in Hamilton speak up when they have a concern. And if there is a group that has uh, created a platform which makes it easy for them to respond, sometimes people utilize that platform. But there were emails that were clearly not utilizing that platform that came in also. And we also have a um, little over 11,000, uh, and they're still counting, mailed envelopes, which would have um, virtually no uh, direct correlation to the group that was advocating for no boundary expansion. The reason this is such a difficult issue to figure out what to do with beyond the public involvement and investment emotionally in this uh, is that we keep hearing that the city of Hamilton is going to grow by between 250, 300,000 people over the next decades where do you put them? And, and I mean, really, I guess that's the bottom line of this whole thing, but where do you put that many people in this city, especially if the boundaries don't expand? 
you would have to intensify. So you would be building up instead of building out, which is, I think, what you mentioned in your introduction. Um, and, and there is still questions about whether or not the population projections, which is now moved to 2051, the, this government added another 10 years onto it, um, is an accurate projection. And there are questions as to whether or not you can accurately project a population growth that far out. Um, and quite candidly, um, past governments have made um, population projections that did not come true. So um, there's a, you have to take that population projection with a grain of salt, um, although we have to utilize that number. Uh, there's many of us that are not convinced that that's exactly what's going to happen. Have we ever, and I'm trying to think back, I mean, the city of Hamilton has grown certainly over the last, let's say, 25, 30 years, and there's no question we've grown, but not in any measure by the amount that they're saying is going to be happening over the next equal period of time. I mean, it it does sound like an extraordinary amount of growth. It, it does, um, and it was a, a political decision. Uh, I know they used uh, some type of formula to, to, to come to that amount, but you're you're correct. Um, we, as far as I know, Hamilton and many other municipalities have not hit the provincial growth projections uh, for population. Um, so, regard, and it doesn't really matter that we haven't hit it. We still have to use that number that is provided by the government, and we have to come up with a plan to house that many people, uh, because that is what the provincial. Uh, policy has mandated um, municipalities to do. One of the concerns that I know some people have, particularly, um, well, generally in the city, is housing prices. Everybody knows what's happened to housing prices in the city. If the boundary was restricted, and, and again, so people understand, and I, tell me if I'm wrong on this one, when they talk about a restriction, it doesn't mean we will never expand, but it just means the bulk of any future growth would be in the urban core. Um, if that was done, though, does that not choke off supply of a certain style of home, which would make homes that are not in the core? Would that not make their prices go through the roof because now there's the demand but not the supply for them? Uh, let me tackle that from two avenues. Um, the proposed ambitious density would have 80% of um, the new residents or 80% of the population, housed in higher-density housing. So multi-residential housing, condominiums, et cetera, townhouses, stacked townhouses, et cetera. Um, so, so that's the, the, the first point. That's, that's, uh, that's already in, in the mix. Um, the second point is the, the council has not made a decision, and, and, and it's um, if they choose to make... Uh, uh, have an urban boundary expansion, it is likely that it will be phased, as is being suggested by um, the city staff. Um, that doesn't make people feel any comfortable, um, any more comfortable about an urban boundary expansion because it's just a question of time before uh, the urban boundary expands. You know, say every decade they're going to build into that new urban boundary. Uh, so it remains to be seen exactly uh, what the final decision will be, and, it, and it, it, it could be any number of things. 
on the flip side, um, so, so I mean, the potential is, as I say, I, I would think that house prices could go way up, I, I would think, especially in some of those areas that, you know, we've seen lately that there's a great demand for with backyards and with a little bit of space. On the flip side, what, is, what are the costs to the city to expand the urban boundary? Because things like infrastructure and sewers and all that kind of stuff, that all fall, would fall to the city, correct? Uh, yes, it does. Um, and one of the motions that was approved by council last January uh, uh, f- for me was uh, having a transportation and infrastructure assessment, which will look at the costs and what needs to be done if there is going to be the urban boundary expansion. Um, that report should come back around the same time as the, the other report. So you're correct. Um, uh, the idea is to have development pay for development. In essence, the home buyer ends up paying for the development charges for the new community, um, but it is not 100%. We never get 100% uh, of the cost to the municipality. And so if if we hit 80% of the costs for a new community, then the 20% is now uh, going to be added to uh, municipal taxes across across the area. So that that's one of the concerns that people have is that we really aren't paying for the infrastructure for or by the new development. Uh, we do not know yet the total breakdown of these nineteen thousand surveys that have come in. Right when 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 do we know? When will we know them? And when or is there any kind of deadline or or finish line for council to be discussing this? to make a decision um, on this. Yeah, Councillor Danko and I uh, moved a motion uh, directing staff to come back uh, with those numbers the week of September 13th. Would I be too s- cynical, maybe maybe uh, fearful, <laughs> to think that this issue, because it is so hot and because it's so important, this could be the next council's next stadium or Red Hill or LRT debate that could drag on for a long, long time? No, because we must file our official plan amendment to meet the population growth with the provincial government by July 1st of 2022. So there is a, a very... There is a finish line. Yep. Yeah. You, we, okay. must, we must hit that finish line uh, regardless of the controversy or the debate. Um, uh, with regards to house, the, the, the suggestion that housing prices will go up if we limit the amount of new houses, um, the argument has been made by some developers that if you build more houses, the price will go down. Well, we've had record building in Hamilton, record building permits for over a decade. And during that time, as all of these new subdivisions are being built in my ward, I did not see any housing prices go down. Uh, I haven't seen them too many other places going down. That's uh, that, that's unquestionably true. Uh, listen, it's it's a topic that we're going to be talking about, I'm sure, uh, more than a few times over the next year before July 1st, 2022. Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. If you ever want to feel out of shape, untalented, <laughs> whatever else, watch the decathlon in the Olympics. And today, I mean, it was it was magnificent today. Damian Werner, Canadian guy from London, Ontario, ends up winning the decathlon, wins the gold medal. First time, I think, first time a Canadian. I know Canadians have medaled before, but first time a Canadian has ever won the decathlon. And he did it with an Olympic record. And it, it is just, it is, some of these things are stunning that you can be training 
for 10 different events. And some of his times or distances or whatever would have put him at or near the top 10 in the event where the guys spend all their time working on that one thing. It, like it's, it's, it is amazing to think that, okay, I've got 10 events I got to work on. So even if I work on two events a day, plus my off field gym training or whatever else, even if I do two events a day, that means I can only practice this probably once a week. So I got to take a day off somewhere along the way. And he can still be as good as the guys or almost as good as the guys who are doing it five or six days a week with that one thing. It is, it is amazing to me. Uh, Bob O'Neill is with us. Bob from CHCH TV Sports. Sir, how are you today? Not bad, sir. Not bad, sir. We always say the decat. Well, it's always been said that the decathlon champion is the greatest athlete in the world. Do we still say that? Um, you know, I think that's fair. It's a fair comment. Um, you know, I mean, athleticism is looked at it in many different ways by many different people. But I think, yeah, I think as you detail to your listening audience, there, the fact that you're competing in ten different events, and you know, the winner definitely has to be in that top five, top ten of all the competitors of all ten of events. And the fact that Warner was only the fourth man to hit the 9,000-point mark, which is the grading system for each event, really, I think, emphasizes a complete athlete. I mean, you're looking at sprinting. You're looking at hurdling. You're looking at shot put, long, long jump and high jump. So uh, I think that's a fair comment. You know what's the amazing thing is, I mean, I've been watching uh, the Olympics. I think most people have. And it, you all, you're reminded of this. You always know this, but you're reminded how absolutely different the body types are for different events. Um, yesterday, it was hilarious because the high jump, the women's high jump was going on at the same time in the stadium the men's shot put was. And the women's high jump, it's all six foot two women who look like they have the shape of a pencil. Like they're so tall and slender. And then the guys throwing the shot put are, if they were two inches taller, they'd be round. And, and then you've got, you know, the, the guys who run 1500 are lanky and slender. And the guys who run the hundred are just powerhouses. And you've got to be all of these things in one body type. It's amazing. He can be as good as he is. Yeah. And can you imagine the amount of training that, you know, the amount of oh. cross training that's got to go on? And, you know, and I think there's one element that we have kind of forgotten here is that you're talking about a competition this year in Tokyo. You know, you're dealing with temperatures, you know, at or in excess of 100 degrees uh, Fahrenheit that uh, these, you know, because it's an all day thing. It's a two day, all day affair. And that, you know, you're competing from morning to night and doing these five different events each day in that kind of temperature uh, against really, when you think about it, too, this isn't a, you know, a, a, a diamond league thing. This is a, this is the best in the world that you're going up against. So you've got to be really on point uh, for every single event. Yesterday, we had Eleanor Harvey on, the fencer from Hamilton, who's just back from Tokyo, and she was talking about the experience there in the Athletes' Village and everything else. And one of the things I asked her was about the lack of fans. And there, there's a pro and there's a con in her mind, she was talking about when she would take off her mask after a match, you, it would just be dead silence and it was weird. What are we missing, do you think? As, as, as spectators at home, what are we missing as far as the atmosphere and the, the excitement that we feel and everything else by not having that, that roar during the 100 meters or that explosion during a huge event or something? What's, what are we not getting? 
Well, you're exactly what you just said. We're not getting the crowd. We're not getting that natural reaction from human beings when Andre DeGrasse, you know, breaks uh, breaks a personal best and you know uh, world records. We took about we were talking about war going back to Warner. I believe two or three of the ten events that he competed in, he smashed the decat the world decathlon records in. So you see those times. And on, on the boards, when, the, when, the, when they come up, the, the Jamaican 100-meter uh, team, three Jamaicans at the same time. Can you imagine the outburst from the crowd you know, of appreciation? And, and, and I think that's what we're missing, too, because you can't help but give that applause of appreciation for the athletes for giving it their absolute all. Now, I'll give the TV stations a lot of credit. Visually, they try to make it look as good as it can. There are times in certain angles where it actually looks like there's crowds there. Um, I, you know, I, I just think that atmosphere is definitely lacking. Um, but again, credit to CBC uh, Chief, and you know, I guess really, I mean, we got events on Sportsnet and T and TSN, but it really is a CBC um, put together event, and I think they're presenting it well. You really, because of the time change, can watch anything you want, really, at any time, depending on your work schedule. And I don't know if you hooked up with this CBC Gem app. Like, you can see every event as it happens, sometimes with commentators. So whatever you want to watch, you can watch. So, uh, again, they've done a nice job in kind of presenting it to the, to the, to the public, I think. Um, crowd lacking. But at the end of the day, it's become one big TV show because there is no crowd. And I'll say this, the the folks who built the Tokyo Olympic Stadium, I, I don't think they were Notre Dame. I don't think they were able to look ahead, but they did the same thing the folks who built Cops Coliseum once upon a time did. And that is you put in all these different multicolor seats so that if the camera is quickly scanning, the thought was, hey, it's going to look like people. And I, I don't think that the people who built Tokyo Stadium were thinking COVID seven or eight years ago when they were planning this thing. But boy, it, it, you're right. It, it kind of, at times, it almost kind of works to look like there are people there. There are quick scan, uh, you know, pullouts and, and low angle shots where you actually do, as I said, it, it, it's almost simulating people in there. Um, but again, I think we all know that there's no one there. So I don't think we're being fooled here. I think we all know that whatever little artificial noise that uh, the broadcasters, NBC and CBC, are throwing in on, the, on what we're watching, I think we've all grown accustomed to that from, you know, basically 18 months of COVID watching in all North American sports, uh, even uh, European sports and soccer. We've seen that kind of simulated crowd noise. I think we all know it's fake, um, but it does add a little something to it. Um, and, you know, after 18 months of, you know, especially someone like myself who's watching sports every single day, <laughs> whether I like it or not, <laughs> you, you've kind of grown accustomed to the fact that there's not crowds there. But I will say, when we do watch sports, like we're going to watch the Tiger Cats today with a full crowd at IG Stadium, boy, it feels good. It sounds good. And it does. You it changes really it. miss it. It changes it. We, and we saw that with the Stanley Cup Finals. When, it, when the games were in Canada, it was, you know, it was fine. But then you go down to the States and it's a full thing. And it's an entire, that's what I was asking about. It's an entirely different viewing experience. It's amazing how much different, how much the fans can bring to the experience, even when you're at home watching it. And, and that's a great example with the Stanley Cup. I mean, because you're literally, in, in the way it worked out, the same team won a Stanley Cup on back-to-back -back years under totally different circumstances. 
one in a you know in in a half empty or actually an empty Rogers Place Arena in Edmonton, and the next year they win it in front of a packed Amelie Arena, their home arena, uh, and wrap it up. Like I mean, you couldn't get any more polar opposites. I'm sure they were on both occasions and both teams uh, were proud of their accomplishment. But to do it in front of a crowd, I'm sure it was such a different appreciation for the players and the coaching staff to feel that, you know, that, that feel of victory must have been so different. And there's one thing, there's a, there's a moment in every Olympics that I, I think is one of the great moments in every Olympics, and that is just at the moment when the 100-meter runners get into the blocks and they ask oh. for quiet, and the entire crowd that's been just buzzing goes full elevator quiet. And then all of a sudden explodes again as soon as the gun goes off. But that, that to me is always one of those goosebump moments of just such great anticipation and the crowd makes that moment happen. All right. We have, we have a couple days left here and certainly there is at least one huge Canadian moment potential left to happen. That's the women's soccer final, which has been moved till um, 8 a.m. I think tomorrow morning, yeah. Friday morning. Um, I don't know. There, I suppose there could be other Canadian surprises, but this is the one that we know. There's one more, at least, Canadian moment to happen in these games. But we're getting close to the end. So at this point, leaving the women aside, because your answer may change tomorrow, depending what happens, what for you is the memorable Canadian Olympic moment of the 2020-2021 Tokyo Games? It'll be DeGrasse for me. I mean, the, the fact that he's played second fiddle to... You know, Usain Bolt for a good, you know, for the Bolt era, quite honestly, uh, with many people saying he could be the next one. Um, the fact that, you know, hey, it's great to medal. Um, an incredible accomplishment to be one of the top three in the world in the Olympics for any event, anything you do. But at the end of the day, everyone's fighting for gold. And what happened yesterday was just unbelievable. And I think you mix it in with the personality um, that this guy's got, I mean, I sometimes when I see athletes like like Andre DeGrasse, I wish we lived in the United States because this guy would have so many opportunities outside of his sport in terms of endorsements. I mean, you know, here, you know, we get people doing McCain French fries and you know, by what's your name? Uh, Bianca Andrescu's doing mattresses like there, you know, there's just so many more opportunities for athletes to, you know, to grab, uh, you know, sponsorship and, and do other things and, you know, make something of your career and make some dough. But anyway, to the point, there, there's something really classy about that fella and just the, the smile, the handsome-looking fella. Uh, and like I said, kind of being that second fiddle. And the fact that all Diamond League season, which is, you know, the, the world-class events that lead up to it, everyone was beginning to wonder if this guy was even going to get to the podium. But as we saw, and, you know, Donovan Bailey did a great job of talking about this on the CBC broadcast, is that winning a Diamond League event means nothing to Andre DeGrasse. You build yourself to peak at that right moment. And we saw Donovan do the same thing in 1996. You peak for that event. And to see him cross the, the finish line yesterday in a personal best time, I thought that the, that was the big thing for me. All due respect to Penny Alexiak um, and, and, and what she did in becoming the most decorated you know, uh, athlete in Canadian Olympic sports history. Wonderful event. I, I'm not knocking that at all. But, boy, I thought the DeGrasse thing to me was, was something special. 
You know what I love about Andre DeGrasse too, and this is this is a, a really it's a stupid peripheral thing. He doesn't for a second look like the sprinters that we have thought sprinters look like for the last 30 years. I mean, he is not a guy who's built like a tank, which was sort of the mold that you had to be, which probably to some degree led to all the drug problems that the sport had a while back. Um, Andre DeGrasse, if you were to put a police lineup and have people who had never watched sports, never watched him and put him in the middle of a police lineup of a bunch of other guys who are sprinters and said, which one is one of the best sprinters in the world? Nobody would pick him. Nobody would pick him. He's completely out of the, out of the mold. Yeah, that's a fair comment too. And, and, you know, because you look at the guy that they're going to say probably could be the big kingpin maybe after a DeGrasse and that's the Knighton kid from the United States whose body is built like Usain Bolt. I mean, and, and we're not even talking about guys like, you know, Carl Lewis and, 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 and Ben Johnson. Those guys were all muscular and, you know, and, and just, just ripped, right? But we're looking at these guys with these big, long strides and big bodies that just are so incredibly graceful for their size. But you're right. DeGrasse does it in a little power pack. He's just and – the, and the way he runs, too – that he at times I believe off the beginning of the 200 meter I think he could have been second to last, and he just comes on on that last 100 meters and uh, even did it in the 100 meter as well, just kind of you know second or third last, and then well he just kicks in and and you're yeah. right it's and he changed something body. and he Sorry? changed something if I recall correctly. Uh, from watching this one last time in the last Olympics, he had that running style where I think it was his right arm for some reason flapped out to the side every time. It, like there was something with his arms where one of them went straight up and he changed his arms. Now, I, I, and I'm not suggesting that that's what made him faster, but it's like he's adjusted what he's done. And now, you know, you work on stuff and it's little tiny things, but here we go. And here's the other thing about Canada's athletes. You look at the athletes that have done really well in these games whether they've won medals or they've come very close. We have a young team. I mean, DeGrasse is not an old man. Uh, Damian Werner is 31. He's not an old man. And and keeping in mind, uh, Penny Alexiak, the entire swimming team. And the next Olympics are only three years away because of the delay, not the usual four. We could have an even considerably better result next time as all of these people are either still in their prime or hitting their prime. Yeah, that's an exact, that's so true. I mean, and we're seeing, you know, hopefully that's sort of the situation with the women's soccer team, minus Christine St. Clair. Although, uh, who knows, three years she might, she might stick around and be 41 or whatever it is. Who knows? That's a, tall, that's a, that's a tall task, right? Like, and maybe she might be there in spirit or as a coach or whatever, but I, I mean, I, I would have to believe this is her last big international competition with this team. Um, she'd be a freak. I mean, she'd be the cheat. We would have to put her in the Tom Brady category to be able to play at 41 years old on, at, on that stage. I'll say that much. But, but again, coming right behind her, and I think this is why it's so special for her and why I so desperately want to see them win because, she, you know, again, like the grass and just finishing third, finishing, getting silver, getting bronze. You, you're looking at Christine St. Clair for 20 years, 20 years, always playing second fiddle. Other than the fact that she broke the international goal-scoring record, which is just an unbelievable accomplishment, but I'm sure if you asked her, a gold medal at these games would wipe all the NCAA championships, the scoring titles, everything she's ever accomplished. You know, she's played on some real bad Canadian teams, Scott. And to get to the top of the podium, 
right now with this group, I think would just mean the absolute world. And, and May, and May for me, uh, you know, the, you asked me the question and I said, DeGrasse was my favorite moment. This, that may be my next, you know, that may surpass DeGrasse for me. Because to I be determined, for sure. That she's put together with that team is, is, has been unbelievable. And think about it, never beating the United States in 20 years. Imagine that. You, you play a team 20, I mean, I think it was 36 times in the 20 years, never winning. How demoralizing could that possibly be? Well, especially in London when it was basically stolen from you with a ref oh. that decided to go rogue, but nonetheless. All right, we got a couple minutes. I'm gonna you mentioned Christine Sinclair. I'm gonna throw the impossible question at you. There's no dodging this one, no hiding. Bubba O'Neill is on the on center stage, spotlight on him. Oh. Who then I'm gonna give you five names. You can choose someone else if you if you think of someone else. I'm gonna give you five names. Who is our greatest Olympian now? Here's the five that I've chosen. Clara Hughes, six medals. And in both summer and winter, she's won in both, which is remarkable to switch over in two sports and win medals. Uh, Cindy Clausen, six medals in speed skating, remarkable, dominated her sport. Penny Alexiak, seven individual medals, most decorated Olympian, four of them in relays, which may affect some thinking, but nonetheless, seven most decorated Olympian. Andre DeGrasse now has five medals in the Olympics and has a chance for one more. I said there was one more Canadian moment. There could be two because there's the four by 100 coming up tomorrow as well. So he could have another one and we'll throw in Christine Sinclair for sure, because of what you just said, three Olympics already has now she's guaranteed a medal. So she has three medals and keeping in mind, unlike swimmers, runners, others can only win one medal per Olympics. She can't win multiple medals. So three is the max she could have had. And she's got three. Who's your number one Olympian? I think Clara Hughes for me. I think the fact that you're competing. I mean, can you, again, we talk about the intense training that goes on for these athletes and, you know, vir- virtually 12 months a year. And for you to be able to, to do speed skating, cycling, again, different Olympics. And again, you're looking at the Summer Olympics where Canada, over her, you know, her Olympic history, you know, sent some pretty weak teams uh, and you know we've always done better in the winter sports in the, the summer olympics so i have always put clara hughes up uh, in the that top level for me at this point i'm ready to put alexiak over cindy clausen similar situation different distances uh different sort of you know team team play uh i i, I think and i think because she's what 21 years old like she's going to win more medals like she could get to 10, maybe even 11 or 12 when it's all yeah. said and done. She may have two more Olympic games left in her. to, to At, in, in her prime. She may in have three, prime. but she'll have two more in her prime. You're, you're right, for sure. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm, in, I'm ready to put her over Clausen. But again, the two, the two Olympic thing to me it blows my mind. I mean, we go crazy in men's sport when people, you know, oh, Bo Jackson, uh, uh, Deion Sanders, Two sport guys. I mean, we blow our minds over that. But I'm trying to imagine training all year long for two different types of, totally different types of sports. To me, that just reigns supreme to me. It it is hard to argue against someone who's switched mid-career from one sport that she was world class at to another sport and became world class. It's, it's, It's incredibly hard to argue with that. And so, yeah, Clara Hughes... You know what, depending on what happens with the four by 100 team and whether DeGrasse wins another medal, uh, he may nudge his way into that category 
Um, and, and you know what? I mean, I'm not trying to dodge it because I, I would I would go with Hughes as well right now. But again, Christine Sinclair, depending on what happens today, because she has been not just the captain of Canada's team, but by far the best player in the Olympics, not just in the in her international career. She's always pretty much been the best player in the Olympics. And because of that reason that she, in her sport, can only win one medal per Olympics and doesn't have relays or doesn't have, you know, 11 on 11 soccer and then seven on seven soccer to play or something. You know what? She, 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 depending on what happens tomorrow, she may nudge her way into that conversation too. But yeah, I, I'll go with Clara Hughes for wow. now. And then especially if the gold medal victory comes with on, on the schedule, a win over the, the world number one, the dominant force in women's soccer for two decades now. Right, yep. if that includes a victory over that team, uh, I don't care. I mean, that, uh, Carrie Lloyd, you can go on and on with the people. Rapino, who's had a great career, uh, they were defeated, fair and square. Uh, and I think that's just icing on the cake for for for, for Christine Sinclair to make, yeah, you know, easily yeah. put in, in her leading leading. I mean, she came off the off the pitch like I mean, she was done. Eighty six minutes. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We got to run. We got to run. But yeah, it, she she has a chance to nose her way into that conversation for real, and she'd be the only team player that would be on our list anyway, that would be there. It's a really, tomorrow morning, eight o'clock our time is, uh, is when you can tune in and watch and see if, if that becomes the case. Uh, Bubba O'Neill, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, Canada. And you can listen to Bubba tonight here on 900 CHML with the, uh, the Ticats broadcast. He is involved in that as well. So we'll be talking more about that later. A quick break back after this on the Scott Thompson show. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is increasing frustration, it seems, across this country at a government plan to bring Afghani translators who helped Canadian soldiers during the war and, and, and the Afghani translators' families to bring them here to escape the danger they're now facing from the Taliban, which is seeking revenge against them. And the frustration comes because this plan, this movement to try and get them here seems to be moving incredibly slowly and is only getting going, they say, it sounds like, because of pressure from veterans groups that has been ramped up in recent days. I want to bring in Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at Royal Military College and Queen's University. He's a fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute to chat about this. Christian, thanks for doing this today. really appreciate the time. Good afternoon. My pleasure. Uh, let's start with a really obvious question. Um, why did we need local translators over there? And, and the reason I ask that, do we not train our military to have translators to go into these places where we're going to go? So we do have some of our own linguistic capacity, but you need substantial surge capacity. And it's not just about the language capabilities. It's also about the cultural sensitivities. You want to have local knowledge on the ground in terms of what are the appropriate ways of doing things. You want to have some of the local knowledge in terms of how you interact with the locals, um, you know, some idea of sort of uh, getting a challenge function on the plan. Um, so they provide a lot more than that. And you also want to provide inherently when you go somewhere some means of uh, 
uh, of employment and some opportunities for the local um, for the locals to work with you because it puts money it helps puts money in their pockets uh, but it also then helps to socialize them into for instance your norms and your particular ways of doing things so it's also a bit of the of the hearts and uh, and minds campaigns and of course in many of these places um, the economy is uh, is in dire straits and part of the reason why people join organizations such as the pa- Taliban is because it's often your only employment prospect so whether you actually support the Taliban or not um, this is how you're going to make a living and support your family um, and so you know we need to when we go into difficult places such as that we also need to provide uh, an economic alternative and the fact that that economic alternative is shrinking also explains why the Taliban are making such rapid inroads because it's a relatively easy recruiting ground for them. Okay, so if we're invading France or Belgium, we're okay, but otherwise we're going to have to find people. Fair enough. How do we find these people? I mean, surely we're not posting signs around in these places to say, hey, want to volunteer? How, how do we find the people and then understand and be confident that they are truly on our side? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's, of course, always challenging because it's not like in these places you have functioning institutions where you can, for instance, get a criminal record check and you can run right. some intelligence on them of how sympathetic they might be to the Taliban and whether they've killed someone in the past. Uh, so those are always sort of the risks. So it's uh, it's quite an elaborate sort of effort to uh, engage with the locals. But ultimately, I mean, we have a bit more of an advantage because so many more people across the world speak English and uh, have learned English at some point. And so it starts with people who uh, have learned English uh, and uh, who've gone to university in many cases um, and so who are willing to come sort of by our side and uh, some of this is through sort of informal references uh, some of it is uh, running our own intelligence and understanding sort of the networks that uh, these individuals might be involved in and some of it is just uh, gaining people's trust and of course the trust element is important because uh, you always run the risk of for instance the you know the Taliban work like any other military or insurgent organization, they run moles and they try to infiltrate our own organizations because they want to know what's going on and uh, and what we're up to. Um, and uh, that's one of the risks, of course, here, that uh, we're not just talking about interpreters. There is uh, um, that some of these interpreters, um, many of them will have been extremely loyal to Canada and some of them will have been Taliban moles. And so one of the things that the government has to hedge on uh, is um, are they prepared to bring people in Canada on very short notice with very minimal uh, security and background clearance at the risk that one or more of them may subsequently have turned out uh, not always having conducted themselves um, with the uh, norms and values, shall we say, that we would expect of of other immigrants uh, or refugees that we would accept in Canada. And what are the terms, I mean, look, this is not obviously the same as a work contract that we might have here, but what are the understood terms of when these people, because there is danger to them, I'm assuming, what's the, what are the terms that they would work for us with? Is it on an assumption or a promise or our best possible guarantee of safety? So this is, I think, exactly what's at stake here, right? So that this wasn't um, uh, not, I think, there are clearly differences in terms of expectations on the part of the local translators and uh, the Canadian government and the Canadian Armed Forces. And I think one of the lessons here is that we clearly need to be more strategic about clarifying those expectations. Is this purely transactional relationship where people are being paid for service? Or is there inherently a broader expectation that one way or another they might uh, be brought in 
to Canada one day and look, the fact that um, Afghanistan is uh, largely falling into the hands of the Taliban was entirely predictable. So, you know, we could have foreseen that one day, not only are we going to be pulling out, um, but that the individuals that were loyal to us, that were supportive to us, that ensured the mission success uh, while we were deployed there, that these individuals and their families would inherently be in danger by virtue of the fact that uh, uh, they had supported what, from instance, from the perspective of the Taliban, uh, our invaders, occupiers, colonizers, uh, whatever you want to call the forces from a from a Taliban perspective. So this predicament was always going to uh, was always going to be there, and we didn't do, I think, as 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 thorough a job um, at uh, narrowing those gaps in expectations. Um, and I would say this is a failure by both previous and the current governments not to anticipate that we're going to be finding ourselves in this sort of situation uh, as the Americans uh, draw down in Afghanistan and this sort of the security infrastructure that maintained the status quo um, with U.S. support was going to uh, come crumbling down rather quickly uh, once that uh, U.S. and some international support was no longer there. How dangerous... How much danger were they in when they're working as as translators? Was there at that moment front line in the line of fire kind of work, or is the danger that they face exactly what's happening now? Where yeah, you know what we're going to work for the Canadians, but if things go wrong and we're left here alone, we may be seen as traitors, and we're the ones now facing this. Was the danger then more, or the danger now more? Well, and that's, of course, one of the nuances that gets lost in this conversation, that some of the individuals here essentially worked in offices providing translation advice uh, and services, and others were out on the front lines, even as part of their job, taking their lives into their hands, uh, going out uh, with our platoons on patrol um, and making sure that we could interact effectively with uh, with locals and providing critical advice to, uh, to ensure mission success. Um, so there's a broad range of risks um, at the time. Um, and there's also a broad range of risks today. Uh, some of the individuals are, um, are well established um, and will be able to fend for themselves regardless of what the security situation brings. Um, many of them um, will be uh, considered as traitors, certainly by the Taliban. Um, and we know that the Taliban have rather harsh methods uh, for <laughs> dealing with Westerners in general, and uh, in particular with people that they would consider having uh, having seen as, seen them as collaborators. So some of these men, as I understand, and they're, and they're all men, correct? Or did we have some female translators? Um, so in Afghanistan, this would have been mostly... Uh, men, but Canada always tries to advance equality of opportunity, uh, so they would have also afforded opportunities for um, for women in that okay. context. So some of them, I understand, have been brought over here, have been allowed to immigrate, have been brought in as refugees or protected by us. Um, why not more or most or all yet? What has the delay been? So there's multiple delays. Of course, there's the paperwork. You need to make sure you're actually processing the right people. You need to make sure that people are actually being honest. Do we actually have records of these people having worked with us? We then, uh, in many cases, need to validate that with the people who work with them, that this person is actually who uh, who they actually claim and say to be, so that we actually have uh, a legitimate process and not people trying to, uh, to game the system. Uh, then there's security and background checks involved with the individuals that might be looking to come here. Usually, they're not looking to to come just on their own. They're looking to bring 
their families, and in many cases those can be large families. Uh, in some cases that might also involve relatives because often people sort of live together uh, in, in communities, and so you can't just extract the translator. It's everybody who's ultimately at risk of, uh, of retribution uh, by the Taliban, so we need to make a judgment call on who uh, could we reasonably accept and who could we reasonably justify, and then we need to make sure that the individuals we bring uh, are people who are uh, who have, uh, to some extent, also a reasonable prospect um, of, uh, um, of, of 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 integrating themselves with some success in Canada and contributing to the prosperity um, of uh, of our own country here. And then, of course, there's always the security risk that uh, since Canada has left, which has been quite some time now, individuals might have possibly gotten involved in nefarious or questionable activities. And so there's always the risk, and that's a considerable risk uh, if you have uh, so many people uh, brought in in such a short period of time uh, that one or more of the individuals might have turned out to have uh, committed uh, a war crime in the meantime or other types of crimes that uh, um, may have been from their perspective, crimes of necessity, but that uh, in Canada, for instance, would make them inadmissible or possibly subject to prosecution. And that's very, I would imagine that's, if we don't have a lot of boots on the ground there now, that becomes very, very difficult to be able to figure that stuff out before you just sign off on them. Uh, yeah, Canada has a very thin presence uh, on the ground in Afghanistan as is, and much of this presence uh, is, of course, concentrated in Kabul, which is, on the one hand, um, a fair ways from where some of the most fierce fighting is currently occurring, and also a fair ways from where the Canadians were stationed around Canada, Kandahar and uh, Helmand province, so all the way in the south. So it becomes very difficult to do uh, direct correspondence and communication with individuals. And you also want to make sure at the same time that uh, you, you have an equitable access. So, you know, if we're having people submit uh, applications by email, uh, that means that the people who are um, who do a bit better for themselves and have a computer and have email access can uh, can submit applications. But um, my best guess is that quite a number, perhaps, of the translators um, might only have a mobile phone, if that, uh, on which they might not even be able to fill in that application, and they might not even have the internet access to be able to contact Canadian authorities to submit an application. So, how do we make sure we also provide equitable access uh, for all the individuals, rather than just the ones that uh, are already better off uh, and are therefore able to get themselves into the queue. So those are all very tricky political um, uh, and bureaucratic challenges. Uh, and the government is clearly looking to get these resolved uh, before it might call an election because we can remember the al uh -huh. uh, challenge under the 2015 election and how that might have influenced some of the outcome. And I think the government wants to make sure that this doesn't become uh, uh, an election issue should the government decide to drop the writ. Even with all the complications, though, it's clear the biggest push for this, or among, I think the biggest push, I think that's fair to say, is coming from veterans groups. And I don't, I mean, soldiers, military people for decades, uh, forever, have, have operated under that motto of no man left behind, no woman left behind. It, it can't be at all surprising that it's the veterans groups who worked with these people who understood the value these people brought and the risk they took. It's It's got to be understandable and predictable that it's the veterans groups pushing hardest for this and angriest about this. 
And that's often how migration policy to Canada works, right? It's personal relationships that people have and that they've built with someone, that they know that someone is a good person. They know someone put their life on their line. In many cases, these translators, and I think many of the veterans would say that in many cases, the translators uh, saved either their own lives or saved the life of someone um, um, of, of someone they were serving with. Uh, so these are uh, these are uh, bonds that are forged under uh, under very challenging sort of circumstances, and so you can see how veterans here would feel um, a debt uh, to the people who helped them uh, fulfill their own um, their own mission. Um, and so these personal relationships uh, are a very important component because, yeah, we can talk broadly about interpreters and so forth, but each of this is an individual story. Each of this is an individual person uh, that faces their own particular challenges. And, of course, they have no one in Afghanistan who's advocating for them. And so it's the veterans groups that step up here. Um, and now that push comes to shove, um, having quietly advocated for this for years, uh, they're now getting the public traction that they've been looking for in terms of um, uh, getting the justice and the opportunities for uh, the people who stepped up for Canada um, uh, to advance Canada's national interests uh, in Afghanistan under difficult circumstances. And we just have a minute, but it, it seems as though even with the pressure, it's still moving very slowly. There's a, a group called the Afghan Canadian Interpreters, and their director says that Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada has largely cut her group out of the discussion here. Um, you know, maybe that's hyperbole to try and get something to happen here, but it sounds like we're still moving at a rather glacial pace. Yeah, so look, of course, I mean, it's still a pandemic. Um, much of Ottawa is still working from home, so everything is taking longer. Everything is more complex. Um, um, immigration and uh, Refugees and Citizenship Canada um, does not sort of have a sudden surge capacity where they can bring in dozens or hundreds of people that can all of a sudden handle these files. So it means you need to find the people who can handle these files. That means there's other work that's not going to get done. Uh, and then there's clearly political direction here to make this a top priority. Um, so that means that uh, the civil servants are going to follow the direction that they receive from the minister in the democratically elected government. Um, and that might mean that in the process, some of the stakeholder groups that think they should be part of the process or have a, have a, have a bona fide case to make that uh, they are the best place to be part of this process end up being cut out of the process so that the civil servants can meet the aims, objectives, and timelines um, that the minister or the government have set for them. And so you can bet that uh, the, the, the deputy minister and the civil servants are working overtime and people are canceling vacation and uh, not taking weekends with their families in order to try to make sure that uh, um, the objectives that the government has now set um, are being met. Christian Luprecht, professor at Royal Military College and Queen's University, fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. A real pleasure. Thanks for this important conversation. Scott Radley on the Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being with us. We're, uh, let me bring in Rick Zamperin, who is uh, sports director, assistant program director, news guy, fill-in host, and host of the fifth quarter. And I've left out about 18 of the things that he does here as well at 900 CHML. Rick, how are you today? Good. How are you? This is like uh, being on Scott Squared. That sounds painful. 
<laughs> I hear there's a procedure for it. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not test it. I, I, every time that happens, I think of playing road hockey as a kid in the winter and running with your stick in front of you and then hitting a block of ice. And, I, w- uh, I was thinking of the mathematical equation, but uh, leave it to you to bring it into the... <laughs> no, I've, I've, that, that road hockey was, uh, was like a, a testing ground for the, the strength of your, I, I hear you. I used to play, axis. I used to play uh, goal in, uh, in road hockey ah. and it was, uh, you know, in the winter months, especially when using that cold, hard orange ball that we would use, oh. you know, oh. I was, I, I was always opting for the tennis ball, but no, we had to use the orange ball and yeah, yeah I got my comeuppance a few times. No, no question. But although I must say the frozen skinless tennis ball was pretty darn hard too. <laughs> yeah, that could do some damage. Uh, just before we get to what I wanted to talk about, which is the Ticats opening their season today, yeah. some uh, breaking sports news of huge interest, I'm sure, to a lot of people. Masai Ujiri, after what, like a year of mystery? Uh, it has been announced that Masai Ujiri has signed to remain with the Raptors. He's got a new job as vice chairman and president of the Toronto Raptors, and he will also still be in charge of player personnel. So mm. there you go. For those who are Raptors fans who have been wondering eagerly, Masai Ujiri is not going anywhere. Yeah, I got to say, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all by that, especially considering that he was still with the team during the draft process. And, you know, if he were to move to, especially to another team, you know, you would want to do that as a president or as a upper management person well before a draft was held. So you can, you know, coordinate with your scouts and your general manager and the the like to, you know, mold your team. The only, uh, you know, thought I had was, you know, if he is going to leave, he's going to leave for something bigger or even something outside the NBA. So happy that he's remaining a Raptor and um, hopefully has a great plan in place with GM Bobby Webster to improve the fortunes of the team uh, on the court. Yeah, and he also, um, part of his job allows him to also be staying involved with his philanthropic organization in Africa. The one thing, if you are a Raptors fan, the one thing that might be a little concerning is that when you start adding all these different things and responsibilities and titles, does this take away from his time analyzing talent and making those kind of decisions? We'll see, I guess, right? We'll see. We don't, we don't know, but we'll, we'll see if that affects anything. Yeah, it could be. And, and you know, he's, uh, you know, a lot of players have pointed to him as the reason for coming to Toronto or considering even coming to Toronto. I mean, there's still that divide between Toronto and the rest of the NBA in terms of a great landing spot. But hey, you talk to the likes of Kyle Lowry, who's now in Miami, DeMar DeRozan, who's off to Chicago now, uh, Vince Carter, who's no longer the NBA. You know, these three stars or superstars love their time here and I think have spread the message that Toronto is a great place to play. And I don't see anything here that uh, that lists a salary, but I'm willing to guess that it's for more than minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, he's up there. That's for sure. <laughs> He is in Rick Zamperin, Bill Kelly territory now in salary. So, <laughs> I don't know about um, that. All right. So as I say, Rick will be, uh, Ticat season kicks off today. Rick will be doing the fifth quarter after the game here on 900CHML. Please, regardless of your state of sobriety, please call in and make your comments and have your say about what the Ticats do, good, bad, or otherwise today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I say, opening game of the season against the defending Great Cup champions, I was talking to... Uh, Rod Peterson from Regina earlier this week, and I asked him the question, there seems to be, on social media anyway, some angst that the Bombers have decided they're going to hang their banner and hand out their rings 
while the Ticats are on the opposite sideline, the team they beat in the Grey Cup. Right. Is, is there is there any problem with? I look at that and I go, no, the Ticats lost. They have no. They should have no complaints. Do you have any problem with them doing it tonight? I don't at all. I mean, tonight is the perfect night to do it. No, you know, regardless of who the opponent is, uh, you know, Winnipeg fans have been robbed like no other fans before them in terms of celebrating their championship team. Yeah, they watched the team win the Grey Cup in Calgary. Yes, they got to participate in the Grey Cup parade. But this is another special night. It's seeing the Grey Cup banner being hoisted, seeing the players, you know, receive their rings. It is going to be a celebratory night. So whether it was against the Tie Cats or the Lions, or the Rough Riders, um, you got to do it in game number one at home. There's going to be 30,000-plus fans in the stands, the biggest crowd um, during the pandemic that we will see for a sporting event or concert or otherwise in this country. So it's the perfect time to do it. Now, whether that's going to get under the skin of some of the Ticats players or get them amped up, well, we'll see that come kickoff time. Uh, no one's going to say this is a must-win game. It is uh, game one of the season, and even if they lose a hundred to Ticats, I'm talking. Even if they lose a hundred to nothing, doesn't change anything. But I will say this, uh, Rick. I can't. Well, I was going to say I can't remember a season that we've come into where Ticat fans have as high expectations as there are for the team this year. And, and I'm going to stick with that. I I can't remember a time when more people thought this was the team to finally end the drought and win the Grey Cup. Yeah, I mean, this is as close to, you know, high-octane Grey Cup uh, excitement that you can get. Certainly, you know, last year when this team's 15-3, and three, the euphoria you know, behind this team going into the playoffs was at an all-time high. Certainly in 2014, after the, uh, you know, Grey Cup loss in Regina the year before, they, they go all the way back to the Grey Cup and end up losing to Calgary. Certainly there was high expectations. But this year, it's even amped up that much more. It's, you know, the, the pandemic uh, is still a thing. We haven't had football since November 24th of 2019. It's been 620 days. Um, the Tiger Cats are on paper, at least, the most talented team in the CFL. They are a team that, you know, the last time they played, won a record-breaking 15 games. They have the most outstanding player on their team in Brandon Banks, the reigning coach of the year in Orlando Steinauer. They're hosting the Grey Cup this year. All signs pointing to this team having a dream come true season. They just got to go out and win some ball games. But yeah, if they lose tonight, they're 0-1 against the defending champs. Their next game is in Regina, which is never a good place to play or an easy place to play. Then they're in Montreal, the first three games on the road, of course, because of COVID and the truncated schedule. By Labor Day, it's not out of the realm of you know uh, mystery and intrigue and everything under the sun that this team could be, I- I'm not saying they are, could be 0-3, and that would be a disastrous start. I don't think they will be 0-3, but it's not out of the equation. They're playing some you know, two very good teams off the off the hop, and then, you know, in Montreal, anything could happen. I, I don't think there'll be anything that, uh, uh, to that effect, but yes, I agree. This is this is the year of all years that fans are saying, we got to win it this year. Uh, okay, so I, I agree that they could go 0-2. Uh, I don't yeah. really expect it, but I agree they could. But here's the thing is... is one thing you left out about their dream situation they've got right now is not only were they 15-3 and three last time they played and pretty much everybody is back, including Jeremiah Masoli, mm-hmm. who was injured, which gives them more quarterback depth. But the East is a disaster still. I mean, Ottawa was three and fifteen. <laughs> yeah. They have not closed the gap from three and fifteen to topple fifteen and three. There's no chance. Um, the Montreal is still looking like it's a bit of a mess, and mm-hmm. Toronto is a could be okay, but is a giant question mark. I mean, 
even if the Ticats were to go 0-6 to start the year, which is impossible, they could still and probably would still win this conference, this division. And that's a great point because, yeah, the East Division, and it has been for how long now? (laughs) Is the weaker weaker sister compared to the West. But I liked what Orlando Steinauer said the other day uh, leading up to this game is, you know, the expectations are what they are. A lot of it is, you know, media-driven in terms of, you know, how they should perform based on what, uh, you know, we as reporters see on paper um, and, and, you know, what we've seen in games gone by. But a lot of the core is back. This is a team that, has, you know, as we know, a couple of years ago, won 15 games. They'd never done that before in the history of this 150-year-old franchise. And the fact of the matter is they should beat most of the teams in this league. But Steinauer said all that doesn't really matter because whenever you play, the team that is performing that night, that is executing, as I like to say, is going to win the game. So you can have a 6-0 and team versus an 0-6 team, and you know on this one particular night, that 0-4 team is going to find the way to win, and that could happen in any given day in the CFL. Now, this team should win, I would say, double digits, you know, if they're 10-4, and four, I think that's probably an accurate statement of the talent that they have on this team. Anything short of that, I wouldn't consider a disappointment. The ultimate disappointment will be whether or not they win the trophy at the end. Yeah, they are much like the Leafs now, where it, people, I think, are just saying, for regular season, don't care. Show us what you do in the playoffs. By the way, to go back to what you just said, you're not wrong about Orlando Steinauer and others. So you and the media, you know, have these expectations. Yeah, it that's such a ridiculous thing when they do that kind of stuff because like what you in your office have not sat and looked at the schedule and thought, Oh, we should win this and this and this you've, you've come into this with a completely open mind with no idea. Come on. I mean, it's not, it's not just the media that's putting these expectations on these guys. They've got expectations. The ownership has expectations. The league has expectations. Um, and, And all of that, Rick, the one thing it does bring while they have, I think a really, really good team on paper, as you've said, there is probably more pressure now, whether that affects them or not. There's probably more pressure to perform than they've had in a long time. I think whenever a team is hosting a Grey Cup and they're expected to at least be in that game, let alone win it, I think the pressure is there. There's no doubt about that. Whenever a team uh, you know, is in a division where you have a, a team that is 12 games behind you the last time we saw the standings, you're expected to win that division. Um, the expectations are there. There are internal expectations with every team in any sport. You know, the Ticats at the start of the season are saying, all right, goal number one is to win the division, obviously. Goal number two is to get to the Grey Cup. Goal number three is to win the championship. So, yeah, those internal expectations are with Hamilton. Be no different than uh, the Ottawa Red Blacks. Uh, you know, their expectations might be, hey, let's win, you know, half of our games, right? Let's fight for a playoff spot. Whether that reality comes to be is a different story, but every team has to at least have something to you know put a bullseye on or at least target that bullseye and you just pointed out the other part which was hamilton is hosting the gray cup and i i don't want to say well yeah i will I, I this would be the year with the team they have and with hosting the Grey. this would be a disaster year if they were not in the gray cup because everything suggests they should be and they should be doing it at home and that would entirely change the vibe of that entire celebration if the home team is in it it, it would be, yeah, disaster, monumental failure, uh, disappointment. You know, you can list a, a bunch of different descriptors. If this team doesn't get to the game, that would be majorly disappointing. If this team, can you imagine the Ticats getting to the Grey Cup and then losing again in the Grey Cup? I mean, 
people would just but at be least beside if, themselves. But at least if that happened, Rick, the week leading up to it and everything, would the party would still be there, the excitement would still be there. Yep. I think you lose out on so much of that if that if that team is not there. I mean, people want them to win for sure and end the drought and have the have the Angelo Mosca photo from 1972 replicated with the holding up the Grey Cup to the fans in the stands. But just you lose so much of what happens that week if the home team isn't in it when they're expected to be. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right because, you know, whenever there's a Grey Cup, there's fans, and this will be interesting because we're in a pandemic, fans from all over the country come to that stadium, come come to, come to the host city to take part in Grey Cup Festival. And again, the, you know, the Ticats in the city of Hamilton are going to put on a Grey Cup Festival. Um, but without the home team, there's, uh, there's a bit of an empty feeling in the city because, you know, it's two neutral parties who are duking it out for the championship. I should mention the last team to win a Grey Cup at home the Ticats were actually involved in that game. That was uh, the twenty fourteen, or pardon me, the twenty thirteen Grey Cup Championship at Taylor Field in Regina, where Saskatchewan beat Hamilton. That's the last hometown team to win the Grey Cup. So mm. it's not automatic, and the hometown team doesn't always get to the championship game. But this has got to be the year that they go all the way. Yeah, the uh, the Tom Hanks Martin Short game. I just remember Tom Hanks was yes. at that game. I think with his kid who was uh, who was in the stands freezing to death. <laughs> uh, the big story coming into this season for the Tie Cats was the fact that Jeremiah Masoli was healthy again after his injury that took him out last time. Yeah. Dane Evans, who had been the guy that took over and had a magnificent season in his absence, both guys now competing for the number one starting quarterback spot. Mazzoli ended up getting the nod for the opening game. Any surprise in your mind, or was that what you thought was going to happen? That was my inkling. You know, I wouldn't have been surprised either way. I guess, I, you know what, I would have been a little a little surprised if Devin, if Dane Evans got uh, the starting gig. And, and I'll say this, because, you know, Mazzoli has a lot more experience and certainly a lot more CFL experience than Dane Evans. Really, Evans took over this team in 2019 after week six. The Ticats were 5-1, and one, their best ever start to a season since 1988. Masoli was looking absolutely fantastic, an MOP candidate up until that day uh, that he got hurt against the Bombers, by the way. Dane Evans takes over, and he he played fantastically well. Uh, his one bad game was in the worst game possible, and that was the Grey Cup, and the team, you know, top to bottom, didn't really play that well in that game. But no, I'm not too surprised that Masoli is the guy because I think he has the confidence of the team, He's looked really good in training camp. He's not wearing a knee brace, which is a great sign for his, you know, reconstructed ACL. Um, he's, you know, he's got some good zip on the ball. He's got great chemistry with some of his top targets on the team. Not to say Evans doesn't, but I think this sends a message to the team that we're going with our veteran guys, the guys that we know uh, can perform under pressure. And not necessarily are the Ticats putting all their eggs in one basket because Steinauer has even said, listen, there's probably going to be an instance or two or three or four this season where we're going to count on Evans to, uh, you know, close out a game, come in in a pinch, do whatever. Um, what the Ticats can say is they have undoubtedly the best quarterback depth in the league, and that'll probably serve them well this season. Could you see a scenario where the Ticats try a combo pack, like for those old enough to remember back in the 80s, Conridge Holloway and Joe Barnes of the yeah. Argos, where they could, I mean, do you think that that could possibly work in 2021? I would not doubt it. Knowing the mad scientist that offensive coordinator Tommy Condell is, I would not put that past him at all. I mean, he's he's unveiled and shown some interesting sets, some intricate looks. Uh, his schemes are... 
uh, you know, fascinating to watch at times. You know, I asked him uh, a couple of weeks ago whether he, you know, sits down like a mad scientist and kind of plans out his attack. And, you know, it's is it a trial and error thing? Does he take, you know, certain things from different uh, um, uh, games that he watches, uh, both north and south of the border? And he basically said he puts everything into a, you know, into, into, a, into a hopper and it comes out the way it comes out. And they try it out at practice and sometimes it doesn't quite work and they fine-tune it for a game. So having two quarterbacks on the field... Wouldn't surprise me. Maybe Masoli lines up at a wideout or slot or Dave Evans and Masoli are both in the backfield. I would not put it past Tommy Condell to try it. Wow. Now, see, I wasn't even thinking of doing him at the same time, although I'd love that. That would be awesome. You were thinking rotating? Yeah. And, and the reason, I mean, the, the question becomes, if you're going to rotate and throw a change up, are the two of them different enough as quarterbacks that one comes in and does something entirely different from the other guy that it can throw off the defense? I wasn't thinking of two at once, although I love that idea. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm talking about one in, one out. I don't know they're that different. This isn't, um, you know, Danny McManus and uh, let's say Richie Williams from years gone by, where one is, you know, a pure pocket passer and one of the quickest releases in CFL history, and the other is a scramble, more accurately run for your life kind of quarterback. Um, <laughs> you know, Masoli and Evans have pretty ha- have a pretty similar skill set. They're both fleet-footed, although I wouldn't call them, you know, exclusive running quarterbacks like a, a Ben Bishop used to be, or even a Damon Allen, although, you know, he's got uh, uh, a lot of yards on his uh, arm uh, in CFL history. But yeah, I think there'd be too close in terms of a change of pace. I think what this offense will try to do, whether it's Masoli or Evans, is change up the tempo. They might go no huddle for a few series or a, a drive or two and then change it up the next time around just to see how the opposing defense uh, reacts. Hey, is Johnny Manziel still on the team? <laughs> Johnny Manziel is not on the team. Last I oh, heard, okay. last I heard, Johnny Football was apparently looking for a football gig in California and not in the National Football League. I uh, see. Last I saw, he was on a milk carton uh, and on the wall <laughs> of the post office. Uh, they were still looking for him. I don't know oh. what happened to him. Uh, Rick Sanford, you now, Rick, tonight, you, um, what is the lineup today? There's, uh, the game is at eight. So what it's so on here on CHML, what's the, uh, what can people listen for? So yeah, pregame show here on CHML goes from seven 30 to eight 30. That'll be with Louis B and Andy Fantuz of the Tiger Cats. Kickoff is at eight 30. So we'll hear RJ Broadhead and his color analyst, uh, the recently retired Luke Tasker. Once the game is over, it'll be in and around 1130 or so. We'll shift gears and go to the fifth quarter here on CHML. You can watch it on CHML's Facebook page. Page, listen on the Radio Player Canada app, of course, online at 900CHML.com. And this is the opportunity, a one-hour uh, long show for fans to react to what happens on the football field tonight. And it's going to be a fantastic time, win, lose, or draw. What is your expectation of the level of happiness or unhappiness of the fans today? Which is an interesting way of saying, what's your prediction for what happens tonight? Yeah, I, I, I'm predicting a nail-biter tonight. I think there's going to be a lot of rust that is shown by the offense and defense and special teams. I think the coaches are going to you know, take some time to get into the flow of the game. I don't think it's going to be a complete disaster, or at least like a first game of a preseason game. I think it'll be good. I think it'll be competitive. I'm going Ticats in a nail-biter 27-24. Yeah, Winnipeg's missing a few key guys. Andrew Harris is out there running back, the uh, most outstanding player of the Grey Cup game. Mm -hmm. and uh, So, yeah, missing a few pieces, but I'm with you. I think Rusty may be the key, but I I think people are going to be happy when they call in tonight. That would be my expectation. Uh, Rick Zampern, again, you can hear tonight on the fifth quarter. Have the numbers ready to dial already so you can get in early. Rick, thanks for doing this. Enjoy the game tonight. You got it. Enjoy being back in general. Yes, it's great to be back. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.